His last book had amounted to a clarion call for an Islamic reformation. The jihadists had denounced him as a heretic. The moderates had proclaimed he had the courage of Martin Luther. That afternoon he had argued, much to Said's dismay, that the ball was now squarely in the Palestinian court. Until the Palestinians part company with the culture of terror, Masudi had said, the Israelis could never be expected to cede an inch of the West Bank, nor should they. Sacrilege, Said had cried. Apostasy. Professor Masudi was tall, a bit over six feet in height, and far too good-looking for a man who worked in close proximity to impressionable young women. His hair was dark and curly, his cheekbones wide and strong, and his square chin had a deep notch in the center. The eyes were brown and deeply set, and lent his face an air of profound and reassuring intelligence. Dressed as he was now, in a cashmere sport jacket and cream-colored roll-neck sweater, he seemed the very archetype of the European intellectual. It was an image he worked hard to convey. Naturally deliberate of movement, he packed his papers and pens methodically into his well-traveled briefcase, then descended the steps from the stage and headed up the center aisle toward the exit. Several members of the audience were loitering in the foyer. Standing to one side, a stormy island in an otherwise tranquil sea, was the girl. She wore faded jeans, a leather jacket, and a checkered Palestinian keffiyeh round her neck. Her black hair shone like a raven's wing. Her eyes were nearly black, too, but shone with something else. Her name was Hamida al-Tatari, a refugee, she had said, born in Amman, raised in Canada, now residing in North London. Masudi had met her that afternoon at a reception in the student union. Over coffee, she had fervently accused him of insufficient outrage over the crimes of the Americans and Jews. Masudi had liked what he had seen. They were planning to have drinks that evening at the wine bar next to the theater in Sloan Square. His intentions weren't romantic. It wasn't Hamida's body he wanted. It was her zeal and her clean face, her perfect English and Canadian passport. She gave him a furtive glance as he crossed the foyer but made no attempt to speak to him. Keep your distance after the symposium, he had instructed her that afternoon. A man in my position has to be careful about who he's seen with. Outside, he sheltered for a moment beneath the portico and gazed at the traffic moving sluggishly along the wet street. He felt someone brush against his elbow, then watched as Hamida plunged wordlessly into the cloudburst. He waited until she was gone, then hung his briefcase from his shoulder and set out in the opposite direction toward his hotel in Russell Square. The change came over him same change that always occurred whenever he moved from one life to the other. The quickening of the pulse, the sharpening of the senses, the sudden fondness for small details, such as the balding young man walking toward him beneath the shelter of an umbrella, whose gaze seemed to linger on Masudi's face an instant too long, or the newsagent who stared brazenly into Masudi's eyes as he purchased a copy of the Evening Standard, or the taxi driver who watched him thirty seconds later as he dropped the same newspaper into a rubbish bin in Upper Woburn Place. A London bus overtook him. As it churned slowly past, Masudi peered through the fogged windows and saw a dozen tired-looking faces, nearly all of them black or brown. The New Londoners, he thought. And for a moment the professor of global governance and social theory wrestled with the implications of this. How many secretly sympathized with his cause? How many would sign on the dotted line if he laid before them a contract of death? In the wake of the bus on the opposite pavement was a single pedestrian, oilskin raincoat, stubby ponytail, two straight lines for eyebrows. 
Masudi recognized him instantly. The young man had been at the conference, same row as Hamida, but on the opposite side of the auditorium. He'd been sitting in the same seat earlier that morning, when Masudi had been the lone dissenting voice during a panel discussion on the virtue of barring Israeli academics from European shores. Masudi lowered his gaze and kept walking, while his left hand went involuntarily to the shoulder strap of his briefcase. Was he being followed? If so, by whom? MI5 was the most likely explanation. The most likely, he reminded himself, but not the only one. Perhaps the German BND had followed him to London from Bremen, or perhaps he was under CIA surveillance. But it was the fourth possibility that made Masudi's heart bang suddenly against his ribcage. What if the man was not English or German or American at all? What if he worked for an intelligence service that showed little compunction about liquidating its enemies, even on the streets of foreign countries?